Hey, dear listener, Anthony here. Before we hop into the show, I wanted to let you know about an incredible new resource we just released, The Five Rules of Investing. Dan and I are huge advocates of modeling the behaviors of the people who have done what you hope to do. And who better to model when it comes to investing than legendary investors like Warren Buffett, Howard Marks, and Ray Dalio? This free ebook breaks down the simple time-tested strategies of billionaire real estate investors that you can use to take your investing to the next level. So head over to InvictusMultifamily.com and grab your ebook today. All right, now let's hop into the show. Welcome to Multifamily Investing Made Simple. I am Dan Kruger. As always, I'm joined by my host, Anthony Vecino. And this is the podcast where we take the complexity out of real estate investing so that you can get started today. Anthony, how are you doing, my man? I'm doing pretty good. I have zero complaints in this entire world, despite all the craziness that's happened in the last couple of days. It's uh, nothing to complain about. Not a thing. Not Not one thing. Mm mm. You know, I was listening to something this morning when I was running on the treadmill and it put some things into perspective about how good we have things in life, right? Right now you're taking a drink from a bottle of water or some, some sort of, so, sort, some sort of substance. Water. Yeah. And there's people out there in the world that have to walk, you know, miles a day to go get clean water, assuming that they can even get clean water. So, you know, it just puts into perspective, like I got clean water. I got nothing to complain about. Good way to start the year. That kind it of is. mindset. I like yeah. it. We've got another rock star on with us today. We got Joel Florek. And before I bring him in here, I'm going to give you a brief rundown on who he is, why he's here. Yeah, tell me who this guy is. Well, Joel's an awesome yeah. guy. Uh, he's principal principal of JFH Capital, which is a firm that focuses on uh, acquiring multifamily assets in select markets of Indiana and Michigan. Uh, they currently have 112 units under management, and those properties range from both three to 40 doors from the sounds of it. And uh, I think he's got plans to grow quite a bit here. So I'm really excited to dive in, hear about what he's done and what he's going to do. So, Joel, without further ado, welcome. Hey, and I hope really I got happy that to last be here. Right. You did. You did. Yeah. yeah. Okay. The pressure always goes on when we record. <laughs> so thanks for coming, man. Yeah. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So, so, Joel, just give us a real quick rundown. Who are you for the audience at home? Like, that could be like, who are you at your core? What type of guy are you? How did you get into this business? Like, this is a pretty impressive little resume, and there's a couple of things here I'm excited to dive into. But first, just why don't you give us your 60-second elevator pitch of like, this is Joel and why he's awesome. Yeah, so I grew up in a small town, uh, Marquette, Michigan, up in the Upper Peninsula, way up on the shores of Lake Superior. I went to school, Michigan Tech, got a degree in finance. Uh, based on my parents' kind of background growing up, you know, dad had various jobs, you know, blue-collar jobs, mom was a nurse, but they flipped houses on the side, occasionally hung on to them as rentals. Usually they'd get a little frustrated for one reason or another, kind of panic and sell. So they, they never really built up the, much of a, a substantial portfolio. But I was, from the various earliest you know, ages of my life, was introduced into real estate. I knew that financial independence was something that I wanted to create for myself. So out of college, picked up a four-unit, house-hacked it, Lived in one unit, rented out the others, and uh, knew that you know I, I wanted to scale from there and continue to grow up. But I also wanted to do it in a way that I was comfortable with and familiar with. So for a while, I just bought properties myself, put a lot of sweat equity into them, 
manage them myself. And uh, over the past couple of years, I've started to transition to bringing in investors into certain deals um, so that I can tackle larger projects and ultimately looking to continue to scale and, and grow my portfolio from here. Uh, ultimately, all the properties managed in-house. Very cool. And right before we pushed record, I saw something in your bio that stuck out to me, and I wanted to point it out here real quickly, because uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you just had a baby about four weeks ago. Is that about right? Yep, correct. Dan just had a baby about four weeks ago. So now hey, I'm intrigued congrats. to know what day was your baby born on? December 11th. Did, did you guys have a baby on the same day? November 28th. Now, I think you were like December Oh, okay, 5th, we missed it. Six? I was, I was just, or uh, Collins was oh, December well. 11th. Okay. So pretty close. Awesome. Pretty close. So, real quickly then, like how are you navigating having a newborn at home and also this real estate empire? You know, like you talked about financial freedom. A big part of financial freedom for people is just having the ability to spend the time on the things that they want. Are you finding that you have that time right now to spend with the family or is it still kind of like pedal to the metal, still growing the portfolio, burning the midnight oil? Uh, so family has always been at, at the core of how I have viewed you know, work and, and life balance, if you will, if you, if you want to throw out that term. So honestly, it's been just fine. This is actually number two for me. I already have a three-year-old. You know, you're, so, you're a pro. He's a pro. <laughs> it, yeah. So, so this is, uh, it's actually been pretty, pretty darn easy. <laughs> He's been a wonderful baby. Hope. My wife's fantastic. Give me hope. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, and fortunate, you know, my wife, uh, I am able to allow her to stay at home and that's something that she wanted to do. So, uh, that helps to make my life a little easier that I know that, you know, she's for the most part got the, uh, stuff at the house taken care of. And, uh, it's, it's my job to go, you know, provide, uh, monetarily and, and help us to achieve some of those larger goals that, uh, we're going to need a little bit of money for and need to be able to have the flexibility in our time and schedule. So it's fantastic. Yeah, I don't know about also, you, but that was like one of my main motivating factors to get out of the, the corporate world and do my own thing was to allow that flexibility to be there when those babies start popping out. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, it will take it back to my first job. I had two weeks of vacation. Like, yeah, I mean, I got paid, you know, pretty darn well for uh, a kid right out of college, but I love to travel. Like, <laughs> two weeks of vacation, my yeah. family would go to Florida for a week. So, Darn, I got to waste it's nice my to be vacation to on my family, decide. you know, before I can yeah. even start talking about doing things that I would like to do. Uh, and that just wasn't acceptable mm -hmm. for me. So I knew, you know, right away, yeah, I need to work on, you know, getting out on my own. Uh, I think this last year, we probably spent about 10 weeks, you know, sporadically throughout the year traveling uh, to different parts of the country. And, and that's something that we'll continue to do. So. Yeah. And even beyond like, you know, travel, just simple day to day stuff, like having the option to be at home for breakfast with your kid at 9 a.m. and not have to be at a desk yeah. somewhere else at eight. Like that right there was, you know, a big thing for me. So, yeah, I love oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So, so let's get tactical then. Let's start getting into the weeds of real estate and investing and how you know, maybe some of our listeners at home who are like envisioning a world like that, but they're still stuck with the W2, how they can get to that place. So, What's your what's your bad investing advice for this week? Because sometimes the easiest way to learn what to do is to focus on what not to do. Um, so what's your what's your bad investing tip? Yeah. So uh, take the business plan that you put together for buying a property and just throw it out the window uh, and wing it. <laughs> so all the uh, you know the budgets that you put together for renovation plans, 
you, you put those together for a reason, right? Um, stick to those, follow those, do everything you can to stay within budget. If you got contractors that are telling you, oh, it can't be done, well, push, you know, work to try and see if there's creative ways that you can solve some of these problems. You know, make sure you have the, the money that you need going into the deal. Um, if you can't pull all that together yourself, bring on partners who can uh, help support that. But the worst thing you can do is, <laughs> is have a plan for taking out a big multifamily property or, or a small single family home and, and, you know, not having a plan or not following your plan. That's very true. We see so many people out there that put all of their energy and work into getting the deal and getting it to the closing table. And I think a lot of younger, less experienced operators out there think that that's most of the work. And then once you close, you're done. It's like, no, that's when you start working. Yeah. And, yeah. I, I always you know. in my emails, uh, when I close a deal and uh, for my investors, you know, I say, hey, you know, congratulations. We got the closing table. Now the real work begins for me. <laughs> yeah they're done the passive investors are done they sit back and yeah. cash checks but that's what for you sure, really for get sure. to work. exactly that's when i find out all the issues that have been going on at the property that I necessarily get you know didn't know about and yeah that's, that's when all ends. you know this this calls to mind for me the the dwight d eisenhower quote which is that plans are useless planning is essential and he's not saying that like you just throw out the plan from day one, right? Like the, the idea is that plans have to evolve and change and grow. And like when you get into the heat of battle, like the contractor is going to push back, things are going to start running over budget and you need to be pivoting and adjusting the plan as you go. And I think what a lot of people do is they get that first bit of resistance or something doesn't quite go to plan. And then they throw the whole thing, they scrap the whole thing and they give up on it. And then they're just in kind of like day-to-day fight it out mode. And just saying, well, let's just try and get through this next day. Let's just try and tackle this next project. And when you take your eye off the horizon of where you're trying to go, next thing you're like, well, you're going to end up in some unknown destination when you finally do look up. So what, what would you say to somebody, though, that's in the heat of battle? Because you're an operator. One of the things I really appreciate about you is that you have a lot of hands-on experience. You're in the trenches. You're out there doing the, the electrical. You're ripping out toilets. Like You have that experience. What do you do and how do you process when something's not going exactly how you anticipated it would. Yeah. So, uh, and this is actually a question that comes up with uh, certain investors when they're saying, you know, well, how do you underwrite a deal? What do you look at? Well, for me, I look at multifamily properties in particular as, you know, levers. How many levers does the property have that we can go and pull? And to kind of dive into that a little bit further, you know, as a value add investor, the way we add value is by pulling different levers. That might be renovating a unit. Well, what kind of renovations are we doing? Are we doing mica countertops? Are we doing granite? Are we replacing all the floor? Are we doing you know, painting fixtures, what have you? Um, is there a laundry contract in place? Could we potentially bring that laundry contract uh, and you know, throw it out the door and, and take laundry in-house so that we can get all the coin laundry dollars? So, you know, each of these different things to potentially add revenue or reduce expenses is a lever. So I want to make sure when I'm looking at a property and evaluating a business plan, my underwriting sheet, that I'm not pulling every single lever that I can potentially see on a property because I know I'm going to hit some bumps in the road. I know there's going to be a few potholes that I'm going to run into um, and I'm going to have to figure out how to get out of that. Well, if I know that I actually kind of have a plan B, C, D, E, F, G, 
different levers that I can go pull that I wasn't initially planning on doing. I know that there's a path for me to still be able to execute on achieving the returns that I wanted to get that I, you know, for myself, for my investors, I'm just going to have to go about it in a slightly different way. And I do understand, you know, with each of those different opportunities, what that might take for me to go and get it. I was hoping to not have to, but hey, that's life, right? Mm-hmm. Do you have a particular lever that's your favorite to pull? That's like low hanging fruit. Every time you go in, you're like, let's let's implement this one because I always know it's an easy one and it's going to have big returns. I, so uh, at least for the size properties that we've, you know, that I've been uh, taking down, ultimately sweat equity. And I literally mean like going to the tool rental shop and renting that skidster myself and digging out the landscaping beds and, and doing the work. You know, it's wonderful when you can find a great contractor who you can just write a check and they're going to go and take care of it. And I'm, you know, continually working to find those folks and to hand off work to them. But I always know at the end of the day, when push comes to shove, I've got the fortitude and the skills necessary to roll up my sleeves and cut out some massive costs on labor. So that that's something that I've done. Obviously, the bigger the property you get, the harder that becomes. But it might not necessarily be you rolling up your sleeves. It might be you know going on uh, Facebook Marketplace or Craigslist and and finding a, a crew of guys and just putting those folks together yourself in order to tackle a project short term. You know, get it to the finish line and and move forward. So that's something that I've done. Uh, but ultimately, you know, just unit renovations is is my uh unit renovations and landscaping are kind of my two biggest things and i usually don't renovate to the highest end on my units because i always want to know like hey i can always take this a step further but you know if, if i only go to here you know i want this thing to work out financially but if 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 i need to push those rents even more there are additional things I can do in my renovation plan that, you know, could could potentially allow me to hit those higher marks. Yeah, I love it. You know, we talk about that every deal needs three things, time, knowledge and money. And the sweat equity is a way of saying, well, you have the time, you have the knowledge, but maybe you want to maximize your capital. Right. And so like, you don't want to go be deploying that. So you're going to leverage those other two. So that's like a fantastic, fantastic idea. I'm curious why the landscaping as being like one of the bigger ones for you guys, because a lot of times when people talk about, you know, revenue generating improvements, they're talking about in units modifications or maybe decreasing certain utility expenses. But the landscaping, what's what's the thought behind that? Yeah, so that's that's been a big part of at least the last three acquisitions. All landscaping beds got completely dug up, tore out. If your property looks like crap when you show up, you really think that you're going to find quality tenants, that it's going to be attractive for people. You know, it makes your leasing that much harder, right? The other thing too is is there is an approach to landscaping that can be low maintenance. So you know, I, I'm very strategic in the type of plants I use. Uh, yeah, I like using river rock as opposed to mulch. I'm not a mulch fan. You have to redo it every year. It washes away in the rain. It's a mess. Weeds grow through it. Uh, river rock, you just leaf blower. It's, it's really easy to keep that area clean. Uh, use really low maintenance plants. Um, so it helps to kind of control some of my costs long term. 
while keeping that property looking up to a higher standards that looks really clean and that's that sets a precedence for people when they show up and i really feel like it helps the leasing efforts and it, and it really isn't that costly labor's the the biggest thing and any any sort of big landscaping job you're trying to do that's that's a really cool uh, perspective because it's one it's one of those things that when you're looking at underwriting a deal it's not a clear path between better looking front yard and higher rents, but I think you hit it on the head there. It's not really about getting higher rents. It's about uh, getting more rental leads and attrition of those rental leads. So keeping people in there and people like to be in a nice looking place, even if they're not going to pay you more, they're going to leave less and stay longer. Uh, so you really, you increase your occupancy uh, and decrease your vacancy. You're not really getting higher rents, but your, 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 your lower vacancy flows through to the bottom line and adds value. Well, so. and think about it this way too, right? If uh, you, you know, if tenants drive up to your property every day and it looks like shit, how do you think they're going to treat their unit? Like shit. I, I, yeah, exactly, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you you only get one shot at a first impression, and you know you can take the two sides of the spectrum here. One where you have like a really beautiful exterior, but then when you get to the units, it's complete garbage. Well, that person's already been kind of primed to think like this place is really pretty. They're starting to like it as they're walking down the hallway. By the time you open the door and show them the unit, they're like, oh, this isn't great, but they, you know, it's not as bad as it could be. Whereas the flip side of that is you could have a terrible exterior, but the absolute coolest units in the world, like pristine, they don't care because the whole time they're walking through the building to get to the unit, they're just looking around. They're like, it smells bad. It looks bad. You open the doors. It could be the Taj Mahal in there and they're not going to care because their first experience with this place has been so poor. So I'm on that point. I'm kind of curious, Joel. Like, let's say you're taking down a 40-unit building. There's value-add components interior in the units, and there's value-add components on the outside by improving landscape. Do you do the landscaping first, in the middle, at the end? Where do you prioritize it with uh, the other stuff, assuming there's unit upgrades you can do as well? With respect to the workflow? Yeah. 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 So filling units always takes precedence. So the, you know, the absolute priority is... Let's go out and knock out any vacant unit renovations we need to do in order to get those units on the market and filling them. Assuming that we have that under control, obviously landscaping is something that I want to knock out. Typically, you know, it's within the first month or two of acquisition that I'm getting in there and knocking out those landscaping projects. Um, and, and, you know, from a material cost standpoint, you know, generally, it hasn't been more than three to five hundred dollars in material and equipment cost per unit, so it, it's a pretty small expense. Now, every time I quoted, <laughs> uh, you know, they had another thousand dollars per unit in labor, which is crazy. Now, I could go around and try to find additional quotes, but um, I, I've had the time in my past acquisitions to be able to put in that sweat equity, and I guess that's kind of another thing that I'll bring up. You know, for me. I would rather move a little bit slower and only do one acquisition or two acquisitions a year. I'd rather do a smaller acquisition if that means that I have more control over the property, more ownership. You know, I haven't brought investors into every deal. You know, uh, uh, in 2019, brought investors into a deal. Um, then this summer, I purchased a deal myself, and then just in December, closed on another deal that I brought investors into. So I'm not necessarily you know, on some ego trip, trying to tackle the largest project and throw out this great big gigantic unit count. But if I look at 
the ownership that I have in my properties, the cash flow that I'm able to receive and the lifestyle that I can live, I'm far more happier with the approach that I've taken than a lot of my peers in the industry that are quote unquote syndicating deals, but still having to work W2 jobs and they're trying to balance it all. And they're just wishing they could be full-time. And in my eyes, I'm like, well, I I like some of the hands-on work that I do. So I'd rather put in some hours there and, and build my business the way that I'm happy with and, and feel good about. That's such a good point. I, I hope people... Dan's yeah, about to well, hop I just on hope his soapbox. Just so everybody listen knows. to this Brace because yourself. it's so important. <laughs> I think so many people get caught up comparing yeah. these arbitrary metrics, like how many doors we have, how many units we have under man, or how many, uh, you know, what's the value of our portfolio? Like, it doesn't matter if you're not happy. Like, if you're happy just buying a, a single family home every year, like, yeah, great. There's nothing sure. wrong with that. So happiness needs to be priority number one but i also want to ask you a question on you know anthony asked you about your favorite lever to pull you mentioned sweat equity is you know first then we kind of got into some of those other value components that you like to always try to implement but the the main pushback people probably give you with the whole sweat equity component is that that isn't really scaled um so i'm curious what your plan is and <laughs> I've, it, heard it is that, I've heard that a few times yeah it is scalable. So I'm curious, like what your plan is to scale that because it's definitely scalable. Yeah. Well, as, as I mentioned, you know, it might not necessarily be me rolling up my own, own sleeves, but it might be hiring a crew of guys and, and, you know, or gals and having them. So all my properties currently manage in house. Uh, well, my 26 unit, I don't, I will very shortly. I'm, I'm hopefully this week going to get an accepted offer letter for uh, uh, an applicant for my full-time property manager. We're going to fire that, that third-party group and bring that in-house. But, but anyways, you know, managing the properties in-house, having control, you know, I mean, you vertically integrate and, and kind of, you know, build your own systems and teams. You're going to have, in my opinion, uh, a little tougher growing pains uh, when you take that approach. But if you do it right, I, I think it can... you know, it'll pay itself off in leaps and bounds because ultimately the value in multifamily is, is yes, it's cash flow, right? Like that's what we all talk about, the passive income. We love that. But it's, it's at the end of the day, that appreciation that we're forcing in the property. And how do you do that? It's about controlling your NOI. So ultimately, you know, I'll call sweat equity, vertical, you know, integration, you know, having that management arm in house. If if we're putting our effort and focus every day into managing that NOI to the highest potential, we're maximizing that appreciation that we can force in our properties. So that's that's essentially how I, I push back on that. As I just say, yeah, it's going to take me a little bit longer to scale and grow my business than maybe the guy who's just going to hire everything out to a third party group, but. I can have far more control over, you know, every step of the process. Yeah. When, if somebody's pushing back or if you're listening to this at home and you're thinking sweat equity doesn't scale, that's the issue, like blah, 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 blah. Substitute the word control that Joel's putting in there. That's the key. Controlling as many different aspects of the, the deal. The person who controls the deal is going to be the one that ultimately succeeds. And so I think what Joel's getting at here is who's ever closest to the consumer in the end, and that's the resident or the investor, or you know, if that's your own investment money, if you have all the, the points of control under in-house, then you can do a lot more interesting things when you're not so beholden to a third-party manager or you know, uh, an asset manager, a third-party uh, asset manager. And one of the things, I want to tie this back because 
you know, we hear this all the time, again, going back to like the units and like how many assets under management you have. And at the end of the day, you nailed it on the head when it's more about like the equity and the control that you have, like, because there's a lot of guys out there that are syndicating 250 unit deals, but they only have like 1% equity in it. And so it's like, well, you know, that's, that's not going to change anybody's life in a meaningful, drastic way. Whereas if you only have a hundred units, but you control a hundred percent of it, that's life changing. And so you know, people, I, I would encourage you just to kind of shift your mindset on that. It's not about having the biggest portfolio. It's about how much you control. For sure. For sure. And, and ultimately, though, it's, you know, I guess I'll say it, it's about achieving the goals that you have. Right. So as a, you know, many of my passive investors, at one point, many of them wanted to go build their own portfolios. And then a lot of them realized like, nah, they don't necessarily like or love all the work that goes into it. So they just have the goals of like paying their property tax bill and eventually covering, you know, all of their uh, lifestyle bills, supplementing, you know, their other retirement plans with passive income that they're creating through their investments that they're making with me or with other operators like yourselves. So, you know, I think it's just really clear that you define yourself what you want to get out of real estate, right? Or, or whatever you're looking to do. And, uh, you know, look out to the world and see what other people are doing. Learn, listen to their advice, consider it, but make your own decision. Be your own person, right? And then figure out how you're going to go ahead and move forward yourself. Very good advice. There's so many different ways to make money in real estate, right? Just about aligning the uh, the strategy with your personality and your lifestyle and your goals. I think that's very good advice. I was going to ask you, return on time. You mentioned that uh, before we hopped on the air here. And you know while we're talking about assets under management and doors and portfolio value and stuff like that, talk to me about return on time and, and that metric and how you incorporate that into um, your thought process when it comes to investing. Yeah. So, you know, as I mentioned before, I've really only been doing one or two deals per year. And, and that's primarily been because I look at that return on time. Um, so if I go out and buy a single family home, there's all the work that goes into finding the right deal, touring it, getting it under contract, negotiating back and forth, doing your inspection, getting the financing lined up, all that work. And then at the end of the day, how much am I going to make? You know, maybe I'm going to make 50 bucks a month. 100 bucks a month, 200 bucks a month, you know, obviously depends on the property and the market and all that stuff. But, you know, I've said, no, I, I don't want to do that. I want to, you know, and, and every step of the way, the, the line has moved up. If I'm going to take on a new property, a new project, it needs to achieve a certain level of, you know, financial gain for me based on the amount of time I have to put into it. And I don't necessarily look at like my day to day work per se, on return on time, I look at like the bigger rocks. That's a big thing for me. I I like to focus on the big rocks in life. Don't really sweat much of the small stuff. So if if I'm going to execute one project in 2021, you know, for me right now, I'm saying that project has to produce at least a half a million dollars for me and my family over the next 10 years. It doesn't have to all be this year, right? I, I don't have to make a hundred grand this year. I don't have to make any money, quote unquote, this year. But I want to execute one new project this year that's going to start creating a trickle of cash flow 
and some equity events later, that's going to produce a half million dollars for me. If it's less than that, I'm probably not going to want to take on that project because it's another thing for me to think about. It takes up time. It takes up energy. There's only so much space up here for me to, you know, balance uh, everything that I've got going on. And at the end of the day, I want to travel. Like I, you know, we we took a trip with our camper out to South Dakota in the fall. We're we're going to Arizona for a ski sun thing uh, coming up here next month. Uh, last year we did a month uh, down in Florida. We rented a house with uh, with my brother and his family, and and that stuff's really important to me. So. Um, I, I've looked at some of my peers in the industry that have built up some pretty cool and impressive portfolios, but gosh, they are just like running, 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 going to bank closings, you know, every other week. Um, they just seem stressed about all this stuff that's going on. And yeah, we all have a lot of work on our plate and so do I, but I feel like my work is much slower. And like I say, any new project that I take on, I just want to make sure that it aligns with my larger goals. I love the, the approach there that you're doing the, you're basically finding the balance between, you know, getting something that's big enough to justify your time, but also finding something that's not going to take all of your time. Right. So there's this kind of balancing act between the two. And, you know, it sounds like from your portfolio, you found your sweet spot somewhere in the 20, 30, 40 unit range. Um, but I'm kind of curious because I know with, you know, everything that happened in 2020, we kind of slightly adjusted uh our approach looking at deals and i'm curious if you've made any adjustments over the past year and if so if you're looking you know for that next you know deal that's going to produce a half million dollars over the whole period for you and your family are you looking at things a little bit differently are you still doing the value add stuff are you tell me about how your your 2021 approach has changed if at all from before yeah so i guess i'll I'll rewind to late 2019 early 2020 so i was running out and and trying to tackle some larger projects i mean you know partnering up with folks so that way you know we were putting bids on projects as large as 400 units down to you know 100 200 units ultimately none of those panned out and and i still all the projects that we bid on, you know, if they moved forward, I would have loved it. I mean, they, I think they would all been great opportunities. They don't try to move forward on anything if I don't think it's a great opportunity. But with that said, I always want to make sure that each year I'm making progress moving forward. So just because I was working with some pretty impressive partners to try and tackle a 400 unit doesn't mean that a 26 unit was, uh, you know, that I was above it. Good right? deal is like, a good deal, right? No. It came across my desk and it was still a great deal. It fit with my existing portfolio pretty darn well. So yeah, let me take this on. And and I think it, you know, it uh it should produce some some great returns and absolutely hit the marks that I had talked about that were on my threshold. So the the smaller 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 unit stuff are I'll call it 20 to 80, whatever. The nice thing with that kind of size is typically, you know, you're not fighting against the big boys out there, you know, the big players in the industry. It's a little bit easier. You know, it's really easy to finance those with my community bank relationships. So that part really isn't much of a challenge for me. So as long as it's a good deal and it fits with my existing portfolio, I'm happy to take those on. And I think that I, you know, have a good reputation for being able to close those. So, you know, if I make an offer, the brokers and sellers take that pretty seriously. Um, but 2021, ultimately, 
you know, still looking to take down those types of deals. And I think that's probably the highest likelihood type of asset that I'll be closing on in 2021. However, I'm still going to be looking for probably that 100 to 200 unit type property, because that's ultimately where I would like to be. Scattered site portfolios are tough. And, and I would like to get to where I can have those on-site managers. So, but again, I want to make sure I have a big enough piece of the pie to where it's, it's worth my effort. There's, there's so much here that I want to unpack because it's so good. Is like this idea, when you talked about the return on time and wanting to find a deal that's going to return, what was it, 500000 over the next 10 years, right? Like you're playing on this really long horizon. And I think a lot of people when they get into real estate or in anything entrepreneurial, they start to look at how can I make money the quickest? How do I get the, the most return on my capital, the, the velocity of capital instantly? And the thing with real estate that's so fascinating is that it's the best get rich slowly scheme around. Like if you just play it long enough, you will get rich, but it, it doesn't <laughs> happen sure. quickly. And so I love that you're, you're just looking at this on a 10 year horizon where a lot of people are looking, okay, how much am I going to make at closing? on this transaction, like a lot of syndicators just looking at the fees and saying, how much do I get when we close? You know, and that's just the wrong approach. So I, I really appreciate that. And then this other idea of like not being too big or above looking at a deal, if the deal makes sense, like Dan and I, we like to talk about being deal agnostic. If the numbers make sense, we're going to take a look at it. You know, like our last acquisition that we did in November was 30 units. Now it's nine units. And it's like, it's all over the map because the numbers make sense. And that fits into our portfolio and our plan. And that's really the key is to not go chasing things that don't fit in with the plan. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. So Dan, you look like you had a question there. I, I was, You're queuing up. but I did. I felt like you were going to queue up uh, a little book reco. I didn't want to. I was going to queue it up. I could but tell. You can queue it up. I can smell bring, a book reco coming from a mile away. Bring the book rack home. You can do it. I believe. I was going to ask a quick question. It's a little bit more high level. It was just on if you came into real estate, having that good of a grasp on your mental state and the ego and the emotions and knowing exactly what you were going to do, or if you kind of went through a period where you tried to do what everyone else was doing and say bigger is better, and then you kind of backtracked. I'm just curious if, if you had your head pointing the right I direction mean, the whole time. I, I, I feel like I'm the same person from when I started. I just know a heck of a lot more. <laughs> you know, there's, uh, I, I think back to that first four unit and gosh, I just, I, there's so much I didn't know. But at the same time, uh, you, know. you don't want <laughs> like, to do yeah. your first deal of a 400 unit and find out there's so much you don't know, right? Oh, I mean, that would oh, be the worst case scenario. Oh, for sure. <laughs> for yeah. sure. You know, so at the end of the day, you know, my parents, extremely influential. It's one of the things I, I loved yeah, about, you know, both my parents is, is they were never above getting their hands dirty. I, I learned so much from my dad who, uh, he'd always amaze me as a kid because he'd be like, oh yeah, we're going to go take on this project. We're going to rip off the top half of the house and build up new walls and throw on trusses. And, and you know, we're going we're gonna to build a second story on our house. And I'd be like, well, how do we do that? Like, how do you know how to do that? Like, yeah. <laughs> like, I, I haven't done it before, Joel, but you know, I've, I've done this and that. Like, I, I've got some people who I can call to, you know, learn. And, and he, was, he was always confident enough in himself and That's his awesome. abilities that he'd be able to figure it out and that he was willing to put forth whatever work was necessary to get the job done. And, and like I say, I mean, growing up and working side by side with a guy like that, 
Um, it's hard not to turn out good I mean, if that's kind of your, know, just, your your role model, right? That's a good <laughs> a good environment to be in. Yeah, for sure. But at the same day, you know, my dad was a, you know a, a plumber when I was a kid. You know, he's a foreman for the city. He's worked his way up through through different construction jobs. Uh, so you know, like I say, I mean, it's he's never above anything. You know, yeah, let's go rent the backhoe and dig up our front yard because our sewer line collapsed and the the plumbing company wants too much to do that work we just can't afford it the work has to get done let's just do it and figure it out um okay sounds sounds good that's awesome well i'm sure you're making your parents proud now you've got 104 Uh, 112 112 112 i'm sorry 112 units under management now so they've got to be uh, pretty happy looking at that. That's got to be cool to watch. Yeah, yeah. Most of it I own myself. You know, I have partners in two of the different deals. You, you manage it, oh, almost all of you. You manage it and you control it. And you, you're the guy making the decisions, which is the work, right? So that's awesome. Yeah, and that's ultimately what I was, what I was always looking to create. And ultimately, you know, my personal goal is 500 units that I'd like between three or four different complexes in that 100 unit plus range. You know, when I kind of look at the, okay, you make 150 to 200 bucks a door per month in a portfolio like that, well, that's, that's a nice path to a million dollars a year in income. It's good looking math. I like yeah. That. It's, you know, pretty simple, but that's ultimately the trajectory that I'm trying to move towards. So I'm a fan know, of simple, take it how it a is. fan of simple, yeah. well, I kind of teased it. You know, those of you who have been chomping at the bit to get your book recommendation for the week, we've got one coming here. So Joel. Uh, I'll pass it over to you here. What do you got for us? What's a good book we should be reading? Yeah, I, I'm a big fan of biographies, memoirs. I don't necessarily know what the uh, correct term too. is there, but I, I love, love hearing different business professionals, entrepreneurs tell their stories about what went well and wrong and everything in between in their careers. So uh, I'm going to cop out a little on <laughs> not throwing out one, but some of my favorites as I went through my uh, long library of audiobooks, Built from Scratch, The Ride of a Lifetime, Quench Your Thirst, Shoe Dog, and Finding My Virginity. All, all those are some that I really liked. I've got a whole bunch of others that I really liked, but as I was quickly scanning through, I was like, ah, I'll just you know put some of these down. So so built from scratch and ride of a lifetime. Who uh, who are those two on? Yeah, ride of a lifetime. That's uh, I love it. Uh, Bob Iger. Uh, oh, okay. Nice. That up. Disney. Hearing his story. And, Interesting title. Uh, yeah, it was it was uh, a really. I was expecting like Harley Davidson. Or something <laughs> like that one, but... Built built from scratch. Home Depot. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a good applicable. one. And then is Quench Your Thirst Gatorade? No, I actually don't know. Quench Your Thirst is Sam Adams. Oh, like interesting. Here, that would be an interesting one. What? When was he around? I don't even know. Uh, I believe he's still still alive. Um, but uh, Sam Adams, the original Sam Adams. Are we talking about the original? No, I'm talking about. Are we talking about the beer, like no. the beer company, like starting the microbrewery movement? Okay, so maybe I'm picturing the the guy in the logo as a real person, and that's not the that, case. Well, that is, that is Sam Adams. Yeah, like he's a revolutionary Adams. from like. Yeah, way back in the day, but then they Got just used it. his yeah. likeness. It's, oh, okay. it's like Benj- I have no idea where Sam. Adams it's like came the from. it's like the Benjamin Franklin <laughs> hardware store, not correlated gotcha. to Benjamin Franklin. Yeah. I clearly need to read this book. I think that's the, yeah, you do. The yeah, I, I I love it. I uh, 
those are always the books for me that are really entertaining. And when I oh, yeah. start them, I, uh, I, I just can't stop them. I know like the, the ride of a lifetime, I was driving back, uh, about a sailboat this summer, uh, early this spring, actually out in California, just before all the COVID stuff happened. Like it was like, as I was driving back from California to Indiana, long drive, um, like California started shutting down, like every place started shutting down behind me. That would be an um, interesting drive. Well, oh, it was, it was, it was, it was a phenomenal drive though. Was, uh, on the way home, it was by myself. The girls came with me on the way out and then I flew them home. But anyways, I, you know, I was listening to that book and it was funny because my wife called me to just check in and see how I was doing. And I was like, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. Yep. I love you, babe. But I'm listening to a really good get book. It. I got this book. <laughs> I've been listening for like eight hours. I got like, you know, I'm like halfway through. I'm loving it. I'm going to get back to it. I'll, I'll see you in a couple of days. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Love it. Well, that's uh, awesome. But we'll have obviously uh, links for all that stuff in the show notes for people if they want to uh, grab those. I know I definitely will. Chew dog, I've I've got, but uh, all the other ones on there. And we've rec- that one. That one's been a perennial wreck. I think is it's featured like three or four times now. It's really good, Phil Knight, uh, his story. So, but yeah, Joel, want to thank you for taking the time to join us here today and share a little bit of your story. It's such a it's so refreshing to see when people come in with like this perspective of the long game and that they know exactly what it is that they want to get out of investing, and it's not just going bigger, 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 bigger for the sake of going bigger. Like having that understanding of like what's your ultimate object- objective, and so. For you guys at home that are listening to this and if you enjoyed the show, hopefully you did. Hopefully you learned a lot about it and it kind of helps you frame your own goals and objectives as you move forward into real estate. If you enjoyed the show, go and leave a review. It does us a lot of favors as it helps us spread the word, spread the joy. So go over to iTunes, drop a review, share the episode with your uncle, your niece, whoever. Like Make them, make them listen to it because there's a lot of wisdom in this episode. I think that they're going to get out of it. So we'll catch you guys next week. We thank you for being here. Hey, thanks for joining us for another episode of Multifamily Investing Made Simple. If you enjoyed the show, could you do us a massive favor? Head over to iTunes and leave a five-star rating and review. Your feedback, it means the world to us as it helps us grow and spread the word about multifamily investing. And don't forget, sharing is caring. So fire this episode over to any friends or family who you think could benefit from learning all about multifamily investing. Thanks, guys. We appreciate every single one of you, and we'll see you on the next show.